We are back in our study through the book of Genesis and we're working our way through chapter one which details the famous creation week, the six days over which God created everything followed by a seventh day of rest. And last time we were in this series, we looked a little bit at the age of the universe and as is always the case, if you missed that, you can go watch it on the church's website or listen to it there too. This past week, we're gonna, this week, I'm sorry, we're going to pick things up on the fourth day of creation as God creates the sun, the moon, the stars, and the planets. So let's jump right in. We're in Genesis chapter one. After four weeks studying this chapter, we are on verse 14. It says, then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens, that's referring to the expanse of sky and space, to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs, underlined for signs, and seasons, and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, speaking there of the sun and the moon. And I like this because Genesis calls both the sun and the moon lights. The sun is called the greater light and the moon is called the lesser light, even though we know that the moon does not actually produce any light of its own. So why is it then that when you look up in the night sky, the, the moon serves as a light in the darkness, why does it glow? Well, we all know it's because it's reflecting the greater light of the sun. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, and then later on he told his disciples, you are the light of the world. Both statements are true. Jesus is the greater light, and we are the lesser light. And like the moon, we cannot produce any light or life on our own. We simply reflect the greater light of the sun, in this case, the S-O-N, Jesus Christ. And we're never more useful, we're never more beautiful, we're never more glorious than when we are reflecting the light of Jesus in the darkness by living lives that help people see his light. So make a note of this, as the moon gives light, by reflecting the sun, believers reveal the light of Jesus by simply reflecting his glory and goodness. We're just to be reflectors. We have nothing to offer of ourselves, only to reflect the glory and light of Jesus. And this metaphor continues to unfold. You could easily unpack this into a whole message. Don't worry, I won't. But the metaphor continues to hold when you look at both types of eclipses as well. In a solar eclipse, the moon blocks out the sun. It's as though the moon is saying, I'll be the light. And instead of sticking to its job of just reflecting the light of the sun, it decides, I'm gonna be the light. And does it work? Of, of course not. What's the result? Darkness, absolute darkness. In a lunar eclipse, the moon becomes darkened when the world comes between the sun and the moon. And when our relationship with Jesus is overtaken by the cares of this world, the treasures of this world, the distractions of this world, we become darkened as we cease to reflect the light of Jesus. If we let the world come between us and Jesus, we can't reflect anything. And the glory of God doesn't show up in our lives anywhere. And if we decide that we're gonna try and do the job of Jesus and be the light and block out the sun, that doesn't work either. We just end up sharing darkness with the world. 
we're only useful to the degree that we reflect the light of Jesus. In verse 14, we're told that one of the reasons God created the sun, moon, and stars, and planets is for signs, is for signs. I had you underline that. Now, what does that mean? It's a reference to what we would culturally refer to as the zodiac. Now, don't get weirded out. If you're getting weirded out, it's probably because you're a Pisces and Pisces are like that. No, don't get, weird, don't get weirded out. Just hang with me, hang with me. The Zodiac comes to us largely from the Babylonians, which is modern-day Iraq, and there are many theologians who believe, based upon historical sources, that the Zodiac is actually a pagan corruption of a much older Hebrew concept known as the Matzeroth. And the idea is that the Matzeroth may have been introduced to the Babylonians. How would that have happened, do you think? Through Daniel. Daniel became the leader, the chief magi, the chief mystic, the chief man in charge of the intellectual elite and the spiritual elite of Babylon, and there are those who believe that he would have likely shared with them the Matzeroth, and it later became corrupted in Babylon and turned into a pagan system. The Hebrew Matzeroth assigned characters to constellations in the sky that told a story when you followed through them in the order of their brightness. And when you look up at the signs of the zodiac, have you noticed that none of them actually look anything like what their name is? I mean, none of us have ever said, oh yeah, that looks like a crab. It's right there. It's super obvious. None of them look anything like the thing. You say, oh yeah, that, that's Capricorn over there. And you're like, you're like looking at the illustration it's supposed to match and you're like, I, I don't see it. And you're like, well, well, yeah, those three dots there. What? And it doesn't really make any sense. The reason for that is that the names weren't given to those constellations based on what they looked like. They were given in order of brightness and their primary purpose was to be a mnemonic device, which is a way to remember something. In this case, it's a prophetic story about future events and the idea is that God created these constellations and then at some point shared this story with Adam which was actually a prophecy of the gospel and shared it with Adam so that he could pass it on to his children and they could pass it on to theirs so wherever they were, they could look up at the night sky and go through the different constellations of the Matzeroth and remember this entire prophetic story. The Matzeroth story begins with Virgo, the virgin with child, and goes all the way through the gospel and ends with Leo, the triumphant lion. And I could easily spend the whole message talking about the Matzeroth, but in order to keep things moving, I'm just giving you a summarized overview of the subject. And if you want to learn more about that, you can go home and Google Matzeroth, and you'll have a lot of work to do to sift through all the crazies from the solid actual Hebrew history. But for now, just make a note of this. The Zodiac or the Matzeroth constellations were created by God as a mnemonic device to help his people memorize the prophecy of the Gospels the prophecy of the Gospels. And that's what it's most likely, and I personally believe, talking about when God says here in Genesis 1 that these stars are for signs, for specific signs. Now back to the text, and, and I like this little thrown-in comment at the end of verse 16 where it just says, he made the stars also. So those endless galaxies of billions and billions of stars, oh yeah, he made those too as well. 
verse 17, it says, God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Now don't forget that it was actually all the way back on day one when God said, let there be light. Do you remember that? But it's only here on day four that God assigns and ascribes the light to the sun and the stars and the planets and things like that. So for those first three days, there was light in the universe without any source other than God calling it to be and demanding it to be. And I like to point that out just so that we remember and realize that he can do that because he's God. You see, we think like, well, well no, you can't have light without a source. You gotta have a sun or something. And the reality is we think that because that's how the laws of our universe work. But when God, who's not bound by the laws of our universe at all, says so, he can do it any way he wants. He can say, I'm gonna create light, and then three days from now I'll get around to assigning it to a source. He can do that because he's God. He's completely free from any type of restriction. If he's the one who created the laws of the universe, then he's allowed to exist outside of them and to break them whenever he wants. Now I wanna to touch on the size of the universe for a minute. We live in a subdivision of the universe known as the Milky Way galaxy, and, and our galaxy is so big that the unit of measurement we have to use to describe distances in our galaxy, our space neighborhood, is called light years. And a light year is the distance you would travel in a year if you were moving at the speed of light. In our neck of the woods, the speed of light travels around the earth about seven times per second. That's 186,000 miles per second. In a light year, light travels 5.88 trillion miles. That's the distance that gets covered in one light year. So how big is the Milky Way galaxy? Roughly 100,000 light years wide. That's how big the Milky Way galaxy is. Just our galaxy consists of billions and billions of stars. If we were to count these billions of stars, counting one star per second, it would take us around 2,500 years to count all the stars in our galaxy. And incredibly, scientists tell us they are aware of hundreds of billions of other galaxies in the known universe. And what does the Bible say about all this astronomical vastness? I put the verses on your outline. In Psalm 33 it says, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made and all the host of them, all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He just spoke it into being. And no wonder that, that David as he looked up at the night sky at the Milky Way galaxy wrote these words in Psalm 8. He said, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? One of my favorite verses in the Bible. David is there, he's just looking up at the night sky at a time in history when there wasn't light pollution like there is today and he's just seeing the Milky Way that looks like a cloud. I don't know if you've ever seen that in your life. He just looks up at the vastness of space and he says, you, you just spoke and these things came to be. Why do you care about me? That's the thought that comes to David's mind. Why do you care about me at all? It's incredible. And because the universe is just so massive, scientists think there's gotta be intelligent life on other planets. 
somewhere. And as believers, intelligent life for us is not an issue of statistics or probability or chance. We know we're here because God made the willful decision to create us and give us life for the purpose of knowing him and enjoying him forever. We know why we're here. It's not about statistics. But if the universe is all just random chance, then it would be far too big of a universe for us to reasonably be the only intelligent life. But if this vast and massive and unfathomably huge universe was created so big in order to display the glory, greatness, splendor, and majesty of the Almighty God, then this universe would be just the right size and it would make sense for it to be this big. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. Speaking of the stars and the cosmos here, there's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The idea is wherever you are in the world across language and cultural barriers, you can look up at the night sky and see the glory of God. Why billions and billions of stars and galaxies and supernovas? Why a universe this big? To point to and reveal a God who is glorious beyond comprehension. Write this down. A gloriously massive universe is just the right size to reveal a gloriously massive creator God. If we're the only life in the universe, it doesn't make sense for the universe to be this big unless the purpose of the universe is to reveal a glorious creator God, which it is. Now, as an aside, I'm going to be very restrained on this subject and just talk very briefly about it. If you know me, you know I'd love to go deep on this, but I'm not going to do that. As an aside, while most non-believing scientists would likely believe that there is extraterrestrial life based purely on statistics and the size of the universe, there's a very real issue that's known as the Fermi Paradox. And the Fermi paradox asks the very simple and logical question, if the universe is indeed billions and billions of years old, and if based on the size of the universe, there must be intelligent life somewhere else, and based on the age of the universe, there must be intelligent life somewhere that is billions of years old, then where is everybody? Why haven't we been contacted by multiple races with incredibly advanced technologies? That's the Fermi paradox. It recognizes that there's a fundamental problem with the fact that we haven't been contacted in a noticeable way by extraterrestrial life. If you're gonna say, we have, don't do that. Talk to me after the service, okay? Let's just hold on that. Now, as a believer, I personally don't believe in non-spiritual, intelligent, extraterrestrial life. I don't believe in beings from other planets. Other dimensions, absolutely. If you believe the Bible, you believe in beings from other dimensions, you already do. But other planets, no. And my main reason is because if there is any other intelligent life on other planets and they've fallen into sin, which they have if God's given them free will, then God would have paid for their sins through the incarnation of Jesus and his death on a cross outside of Jerusalem in Judea on earth, which would be really weird if you would think about it. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says he died once for all. And it was the concept of the Son of God laying down his life to pay for sin that made it acceptable to the Father God. So if there's another planet that has intelligent life, Jesus wouldn't have had to go do that there. 
The issue of salvation is the sacrifice of Jesus. It wasn't the geography of where the sacrifice took place. It was the sacrifice itself. So if there is intelligent life with free will on any other planet, they would have fallen into sin based on the inevitability of that happening, and Jesus would have died for their sins here on earth, which would seem really, really strange. And that's why theologically I don't buy into the idea of intelligent life on other planets. You can discuss that among yourselves over dinner this evening. Now I couldn't resist the opportunity to take a little detour into the book of Job while we're on the subject of astronomy. And as I've shared before, the Bible is not a book of science. That's not its purpose. But when the Bible speaks to scientific concepts, it does so with perfect accuracy. Even if the present age doesn't recognize it, the Bible will always ultimately be vindicated as being scientifically accurate. It's happened over and over again in history, and it's happening even today as neo-Darwinianism evolution is collapsing in the mainstream scientific arena. I'm not talking about Christians saying evolution doesn't work. I'm saying the leading evolutionary biologists in the mainstream scientific community are coming to a consensus that neo-Darwinism is insufficient to explain the things that it attempts to. And if you've been with us for a while or read the book of Job, you know the main story. Some terrible things happen to this guy named Job because God's doing something significant behind the scenes. And when Job finally snaps, he begins asking God, why aren't you taking care of me? And then God responds by asking Job some very challenging questions to reveal the truth and the reality that Job doesn't know or understand everything that's going on. And some of those questions that God asks Job have to do with astronomy. Now keep in mind that the book of Job is considered to be the oldest written book in the Bible. Uh, Conservatively, it's considered to have been written around 1200 BC or even hundreds of years earlier. So keep that in mind as we read this. Here's what it says in Job 38, it's on your outlines. Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? Can you bring out Matzeroth, the literal word there is constellations, in its season? Or can you guide the great bear, also known as Arcturus, with its cubs? So God refers there to three constellations. The Pleiades, which are also known as the seven sisters, Orion, and the great bear, also known as Arcturus. You know it because Ursa Major and Ursa Minor are part of the great bear constellation. So first, God asks Job, he says, can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades? It's as if he's saying, hey Job, you think you can hold the Pleiades together? Well, I can. And do you know what science discovered hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after God said this in the book of Job? Science discovered that the Pleiades is an open star cluster in the constellation of Taurus. It's classified as an open cluster because it is a group of hundreds of stars that are formed from the same cosmic cloud. They're all approximately the same age, they all came into being around the same time, and they all have roughly the same chemical composition. Hundreds of these stars, but most importantly, hundreds and hundreds of years later, science discovered that all these stars that make up the Pleiades are bound together through mutual gravitational attraction. In other words, they're close enough to each other's orbits that they're bound together by essentially the gravitational force that connects them all. 
hundreds and hundreds of stars. They're scientifically bound together. Isabel Lewis of the United States Naval Observatory said, astronomers have identified 250 stars as actual members of this group, all sharing in a common motion and drifting through space in the same direction. She goes on and says, they're journeying onward together through the immensity of space. Another noted astronomer, Robert J. Trumpler, said over 25,000 individual measures of the Pleiades stars are now available, and their study led to the important discovery that the whole cluster is moving in a southeasterly direction. The Pleiades stars may thus be compared to a swarm of birds flying together to a distant goal. This leaves no doubt that the Pleiades are not a temporary or accidental agglomeration of stars, but a system in which the stars are bound together by a close kinship. You see, from our perspective on Earth, the Pleiades will not change in appearance at all, but these stars are marching together in formation toward the same destination, bound in unison, exactly as God described them in the book of Job. God goes on, he asks Job, can you loose the belt of Orion? And he's referring to these three stars that form the linear band at Orion's belt. If you've ever looked up and found Orion or had the chance to do that in your life, it's probably the most identifiable uh, constellation because of those three stars that form Orion's belt. And so God now appears to be challenging Job in the completely opposite way. In the first portion of the verse, he said, can you hold the Pleiades together? And now he says, can you loosen the band of Orion. So can you make it go apart? And God says, well, well, I can. Orion's belt is actually formed by two stars known as uh, El Nilam and Mintaka and one star cluster known as Elnatak. And Elnatak is actually a triple star system, but it just looks like one star from here because they're so close together and it's so far away. So to us, it just looks like one star. These stars are not gravitationally bound together like the Pleiades. Instead, the stars of Orion's belt are actually heading in, wouldn't you know it, different directions. And Garrett P. Service, a noted astronomer, wrote and said, the great figure of Orion appears to be more lasting, not because its stars are physically connected, but because of their great distance, which renders their movements too deliberate to be exactly ascertained. Two of the greatest of its stars that make up that cluster of the third star, Betelgeuse and Rigel, possess as far as has been ascertained no perceptible motion across the line of sight, but there is a little movement perceptible in the belt. At the present time, this consists of an almost perfect straight line, a row of second magnitude stars about equally spaced and of the most striking beauty. In the course of time, however, the two right-hand stars, Mintaka and El Nilam, will approach each other and form a naked eye double. So from our perspective, they'll actually merge into one, but the third, El Natak, will drift away eastward so that the belt will no longer exist. So unlike the Pleiades clusters, the stars in the band of Orion don't share a common trajectory. And in the course of time, Orion's belt will disappear. It will be literally loosened, exactly as God said in the book of Job. And then in the last section of the verse, God describes Arcturus, the great bear, one of the brightest stars in the night sky. And God challenged Job. He says, can you guide the great bear with its cubs? And so God is saying, hey Job, you think you can make Arcturus, the great bear, and its cubs go wherever you want? Well, I can. I can make it do whatever I want. And while Arcturus looked like and was considered to be a single star, for all of history up to 1971, 
1971, astronomers discovered there were actually 52 additional stars connected directionally with Arcturus, known as the Arcturus stream. And so God described Arcturus as having sons or cubs, and in 1971, they found that that was true. Quoting Service again, he says, Arcturus is one of the greatest sons in the universe and is a runaway whose speed of flight is 257 miles per second. Arcturus, we have every reason to believe, possesses thousands of times the mass of our sun. Our sun is traveling only 12.5 miles per second, but Arcturus is traveling 257 miles a second. Charles Burkhalter of the Shabbat Observatory said, this high velocity places Arcturus in that very small class of stars that apparently, quote, are a law unto themselves. Arcturus is an outsider, a visitor, a stranger within the gates to speak plainly. It is a runaway. Newton gives the velocity of a star under control as not more than 25 miles a second and Arcturus is going 257 miles a second. Therefore, combined attraction of all the stars we know cannot stop him or even turn his path. So Arcturus is just gonna go through space if it comes into the gravitational field of another planet or solar system or anything like that, it's just gonna keep blasting right through because it's on its own trajectory, completely unaffected by anything else. Only God has the power to guide them, just as he described in the book of Job. Now I doubt that it was God's intention to give Job a lesson in astronomy, but what he wanted to do was remind Job that he alone had the power and the authority and the wisdom to control the whole fate of the universe. And God wanted Job to know, Job, if I can do that, don't you think I can take care of you? Don't you think I can provide for you? I can take care of your fate? But isn't it just incredible that when God spoke to Job, he shared astronomical details that were so precise, some of them were not even discovered to be true until 1971. As people often do with the Bible, they dismissed it as just poetry or figurative language, but he was being completely literal when the Lord spoke to these things. Even if the Bible is not scientifically exhaustive, it's always scientifically consistent, and my point is that you can always trust the Bible Everything it speaks on is true. It will always be proven to be true. And sometimes our world and sometimes in our individual lives, we take a little while to catch up to the reality that the Bible is true. Think of your life, I think of my life. How many times have you said, that's really not that important and ignored something the Bible says and you discover inevitably, I should have done it the way the Bible said. I sure would have saved myself a whole lot of pain and hurt if I had just done things as the Lord has ordained in his word. You can always trust the Bible, even when the world hasn't caught up yet. Let's jump back into the text. In verse 20, we read, then God said, let the waters, we're gonna do some underlining here, let the waters abound, underline, with an abundance of living creatures. And let the birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created, underline, great sea creatures. And every living thing that moves with which the waters, underline, abounded according to their kind. And every winged bird, underline, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. So now we've reached the Thursday of our creation week. And I've shared in earlier messages in this series how God intentionally created in an order that makes what the Bible says incompatible 
with neo-Darwinian evolutionary theory. Well, God does it again here on the fifth day. Let me be very plain here. What's created on this fifth day? All the creatures that live in the seas and oceans and all the creatures that fly through the air, right? Pretty clear, pretty straightforward. That's not my interpretation. That's what it says right there. Creatures on the land will not be created until the next day, day six. And that's a problem. Because according to neo-Darwinianism, if you can think back to school, we had goo that evolved into fish, which crawled onto the land, and then finally, in the last stage of evolution, took to the air in flight. In other words, neo-Darwinianism teaches that birds came after land creatures. That's just basic Darwinian theory. And yet Genesis 1 has God creating sea and air creatures on a completely different day before land creatures. And then we also see that God doesn't create a single cell organism and then wait for it to evolve over countless billions or millions of years. Instead, what we see is at the time of creation, God creating a quote, abundance of living creatures in the seas and oceans and that fly through the air. And God commands them to multiply and increase and we're told that happened to each creature, what's the phrase that's used? According to its kind. In other words, each creature bred and produced more creatures, it produced the same thing that it was. A fish didn't produce a salamander. A cat didn't produce an eagle. They reproduced according to its kind is what the Bible says. It is so interesting to me that God chose to put that phrase all over Genesis 1. It's not just here, it's all over Genesis 1. It's the kind of phrase that when you take a step back, you have to acknowledge It seems so odd to include this, its only seeming purpose would be to disprove the claim that somebody might make that these animals did not reproduce after their own kind but instead reproduced something else. It seems so self-evident and so obvious, the only reason to include it is if someone's gonna attack that idea, which of course is exactly what Darwinian theory does. But God saw it coming and he addresses it head on over and over and over again here in Genesis 1. Write this down. The Bible is clear. While there can be changes within a species, there cannot be changes across a species. While there can be changes within a species, there cannot be changes across a species. While there can be things like adaptation, microevolution and mutations, there cannot be transmutations or macroevolution, a change from one species to another, one genus to another. That's impossible according to what the Bible says and we'll find out according to basic science as well. You know, you can do all kinds of things to dogs by breeding them certain ways and people do. People take a cute dog and be like, you know, it would be cute if we made this dog ugly and made it look like its face ran into a wall. That would be adorable. And people can do that. But nobody has ever bred a dog that came out a cat. That's never, ever happened. You can get all kinds of changes within the dog species, but you can't make it jump the species gap and become a completely different animal, even if it looks like it sometimes. Evolutionary theory though, here's the thing, this blows my mind, evolutionary theory says that, yeah, but you know, given enough time, and I've just gotta be honest, that's the stupidest thing in the world. 
Time is not a magical ingredient that you can apply to anything that magically makes something that's impossible possible. And that's what evolution says. Yeah, but, but given enough time, given billions and billions of years, what, a, a dog will turn into a cat? No. It doesn't matter how long you wait, time doesn't change anything. And we'll find out it's because it's defined on the genetic level in the DNA coding of a species. Time is not a factor in the equation at all. The point is that you cannot harmonize Genesis 1 and Neo-Darwinianism without absolutely butchering the biblical text and making it say something that it obviously does not say. You have to make a choice about who you're going to believe and I believe that's by God's design. And now we reach the beginning of day six and the Lord creates all the living creatures that will live on the land. And again, I just want you to notice here in these next two verses just how many times God uses the phrase according to its kind. You cannot read this and escape the fact that God clearly wants us to tune into that phrase and its implications. Verse 24, then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind. Cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind. Cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Do you think that God might be trying to make a point about the fact that creatures reproduce after their own kind, after their own species? Absolutely. Neo-Darwinianism has its roots in theories that were developed before we really understood DNA and, and how it works. I could talk all day about DNA, don't worry, I won't, but it really is that interesting. DNA is binary. It's binary coding, which means that everything in DNA is essentially ones and zeros. It's switches that are either set to the on or the off position. In and of itself, just a side note, that's a fascinating piece of evidence for a creator God because any time you have coding, you have to have a what? You have to have a coder. You have to have someone who wrote the code, especially if the code has any intelligence to it. If it's just nonsense, then you don't have to have a coder. But when you have intelligent code that gives direction to a single cell to then produce an entire creature, you have unparalleled intelligence. We have nothing in the created world that we've made that can compare to the intelligence and genetic coding. And there's no explanation for it other than an intelligent coder. DNA is also digital. That means that the entire DNA coding of a creature falls within a specific range, which is what defines its species. And the DNA that that creature passes on to its offspring will come with a specific range, a digital range, ensuring that the offspring will be part of that same species. Let me see if I can make this a bit clearer. A violin is an example of an analog instrument. It's analog because a violin doesn't have any type of frets or definitions to it. If you've ever listened to someone learn to play the violin, then you've experienced the horror of an analog instrument because you can make a sound and a tone anywhere on a violin. You can produce any note as flat or as sharp, as awful or as beautiful as you want. A piano, however, 
is a digital instrument in this sense. There are defined intervals on a piano. You can play a C note, then you can go up a half step and play a C sharp, but you can't play anything in between those two because the interval is defined. You're stuck in a specific range. And what I'm saying is that DNA and genetic coding is digital in that sense. It's not a spectrum. It's not like all animals exist on a spectrum and they could show up anywhere. Genetic coding in DNA ensures that they fall in a specific range and that's what defines the species. This is the entire problem with the gender identity spectrum debate. It goes against basic genetic science. We hear in our culture that gender is a spectrum, but it's not a spectrum because gender is dictated by DNA. This isn't my opinion. DNA coding says you are this or you are this or you are this. You are in this range or you are in this range. And those ranges are defined at the genetic level. So even though a person can choose to live out a different identity, their decision to do that doesn't actually change their genetic coding. The moment you decide to live as something other than your birth gender, your DNA does not modify itself to comply with your wishes. Your genetics stay the same. They, they stay what they are, and that's how genetics work. And so that's why this issue is a very, very controversial and complex subject because in requiring people to affirm the idea that gender is a spectrum, we're actually requiring one another to affirm that science is lying when we actually know it's not on this issue. And, and that's what the real issue is. It's an issue of truth. And are we going to ignore something we know is true just because it makes each other feel better and we don't want to deal with the complicated pain of that? Or are we going to hold to truth as a higher value than even kindness? And truth really is a more noble goal even than kindness because truth is the absolute long-term good whereas kindness is often only the temporary good. And that's why this is such a complex issue. I said more about that than I meant to. And I'll probably regret that later. So... So in other words, DNA demands that creatures produce after their own kind. DNA demands it. Not me, not my belief system, not Christianity. DNA demands that species reproduce after their own kind. And that's a reality that is completely at odds with neo-Darwinianism. It doesn't work with modern science. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about neo-Darwinian evolution. And, and next week we're going to go through a few examples. You're going to find that really, really interesting. But I just want to talk about some big picture stuff first. Uh, as I said before, I think it's incompatible with a literal or even just an honest reading of Genesis 1. If you've been with us or, and you've been on our journey through Genesis 1, then I've done my best to point out the problems between evolutionary theory and the Bible as we've gone through it. And even trying to Attempt to harmonize the two, as we said earlier, means you've got to butcher what the Bible says and ignore what it says. If you're a believer, I can only think of two reasons that you would try to do this. If you're a believer, I can only think of two reasons you would try to make the Bible work with evolutionary theory. First possible reason is that you're embarrassed that being a believer forces you to hold to a view of creation that our culture and society thinks is ridiculous thinks is unscientific. In other words, you don't want to deal with being ridiculed by society. Second possible reason is that you consider current mainstream science to be a greater authority on the nature of true reality than the Bible. That's the other possible explanation. And to the first point, I, I, I've shared before that wanting the approval or acceptance of society in any area 
is not meant to be a consideration for any believer ever. There are no instructions in the Bible to believers or to the church that says, guys, it's really important to be culturally relevant. If you have a church, a group of believers, and people in your culture think you're idiots, you're missing the point. You've got to figure out how to be culturally credible. That's nowhere in the Bible. Absolutely nowhere. Instead, what the Bible says is the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So even the Bible itself says the very center of the Christian faith, Jesus dying on the cross, the thing that saves us, the very center of our faith is foolishness to people who don't believe it. And so if that's foolishness to them, why would we think that they would respect our view on creation? We have no reason to think it. And if you're not okay with people thinking your beliefs are foolish, then according to the Bible, you can't be a Christian. Because people think the very thing that saves us, the cross, is foolishness. So if you're not okay with that, like, you can't be a Christian. They go hand in hand. You've got to be okay with people thinking you're stupid or foolish or ignorant. You've got to be okay with that if you're going to follow Jesus. And if you struggle with this, really do this. Go home, read through and study Romans 1 and 2. And what it says about people who think they're brilliant, who think they're intellectual, and what God has allowed to happen to them. Go study that. Now to the second point, if you consider current mainstream science to be a greater authority on the nature of true reality than the Bible, then you've got a real problem because you have greater faith in what the world says and what people say than you do in what God says. That's a fundamental problem. But you're also not being honest about the fallible nature of science itself. You see, science has proven itself to be wrong over and over and over again throughout history. And if that statement wasn't true, then there would never be any scientific advancement, right? The only way that science advances is by somebody disproving or modernizing or revising an existing scientific theory. The only reason we know that the world is round is because somebody stood up at some point and proved that science was wrong when it said the world was flat. Science has been wrong over and over and over again, and so if you believe that everything modern science is teaching today is 100% correct and true, then you are ignoring the reality of the entire history of all the sciences. It's just not possible that science is 100% correct today. If it was, then we might as well just shut the whole thing down because we figured it out, right? No need for further exploration. We figured it all out. Job 40 verse 8, this is a heavy verse, has God saying this to Job. He says, would you indeed annul my judgment? In other words, are you going to cancel out my judgments? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? So in other words, God says to Job, are you willing to ignore my word and imply that I'm lying in my word so that you can be intellectually accepted by your society? That's what God says on this issue. He says, are you gonna call me a liar so that your friends won't think your belief system is foolish? Is that what you're gonna do? God asks that question. Earlier in this message, we learned how God gave astronomical details in the book of Job that that science didn't discover for millennia. These verses are on your outline too. In Isaiah 40, it says of God, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And that was written at a time when mainstream science, the world over, 
knew that the world was unquestionably flat. And for the vast majority of over 3,000 years, people would read that verse and say, really? The earth is a circle? The earth is round? You see, this is why, this is why we can't take scripture seriously. It's unscientific. And then in Job 26, it says of God, he hangs the earth on nothing. And people would say, come on, come on. On the subcontinent of India, they would say, we all know the world is held up on the backs of giant elephants. Even the Greeks with their philosophical prowess would say, no, come on, it's not elephants. Any intelligent person knows the world is held on the bulging, strong back of Atlas. It's just science. In the South Sea Islands, they would chuckle and say, everybody knows the world rests on the back of a giant tortoise, which rests on the back of another giant tortoise, which rests on the back of another giant tortoise, to infinity. Everybody knows this. Read your science textbooks. In Luke 17, Jesus is talking about the moment the rapture is going to take place. And he says, I tell you, in that night, there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together, grinding wheat. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. And so Jesus described this single moment in time where people, though, are doing different things in different places at different times of the day. So he's there and he says there's going to be two people sleeping, two people grinding wheat, two people working in a field. And, and people must have read this and said, how can this be a simultaneous event that's happening at the same time and yet people are doing all these different things? In one place it's night, in one place it's day. And they would have said, oh, the, the Bible is such a delightful fairy tale. But we all know what Jesus is doing. He's describing time zones in different places in the earth hundreds and hundreds of years before mainstream science figured it out. And there's many other examples I could share. The Bible's not meant to be a scientific book, but when it touches on scientific issues, it does so perfectly. It's been proven to be consistent with science, and science has been proven to lag behind the scientific commentary of the Bible. Today, the Bible says God created the heavens and the earth, and today people smirk and say, really? We all know that everything came from nothing. And I promise that statement in the very near future will be revealed to be as foolish as saying that the world rests on the back of a giant tortoise. The problem of first cause is inescapable. Something cannot come from nothing. It doesn't matter how far back you go. It doesn't matter how much time you put into the equation. It doesn't matter how elaborate your model is. You've still got to account for what the first thing was. The Bible's scientifically reliable. Why should you believe God's account of creation? Because for the first five days, he was the only one there. He's the only one who knows what happened. That's why you should believe him. There's a movement called theistic evolution, and it's the term used for Christians, Christians who hold to the belief that evolution is true, but it was, it was started by God, like God gave the first cell and then just said, you know, do your thing, nature, and just let nature run its course. I'm gonna be blunt on this too. Theistic evolution is an attempt by so-called Christians to give God the bare minimum credit possible for creation. It's an attempt by Christians to be as approved of as possible by their culture while still doing the bare minimum they think will let them be counted as a Christian. 
Theistic evolution is becoming increasingly popular in many segments of the church, and the tragedy and folly of this is that it's happening in the church at the exact same time that neo-Darwinianism is collapsing in the mainstream scientific arena. The scientific community is beginning to acknowledge in a big way that the central premises of Darwinianism are untenable. They're intellectually bankrupt. They don't hold water. Leading scientists are beginning to widely acknowledge that random mutations and natural selection are not sufficient explanations for the world we have today. Those theories simply don't work. We know what evolution can do. They've done lab experiments, and you know what the answer is? Not much, not much. Natural selection explains the survival of a species, but it doesn't explain the arrival of a species. It does a good job explaining how beaks get bigger and how animals adapt to environmental changes, but it doesn't explain where the birds came from in the first place. I'll give you a great example of one problem with evolutionary theory. Neo-Darwinianism is built on, on circular arguments, and I want you to picture this as a circle. So to get the very first cell, the very first cell in the history of the universe, the cell from which life derived, you go back to that, even if you said that's how it started with one cell, to get that first cell, you'd need the three basic ingredients of a cell. Now picture these in like a circle. You need DNA, you need RNA, and you need protein. That's what you need to create the first cell. But here's the problem. You need DNA in order to make RNA, and you need RNA in order to make protein, and you need protein in order to make DNA. Why is this a problem? Because little parts of this could not evolve and develop one at a time. You need the fully finished product arriving at the same time, instantaneously at the same place to produce the first cell. There's nothing in natural selection, nothing in genetic mutations that could produce the first cell. It's scientifically impossible. So make a note of this. The very nature of the first cell required it to come entirely into being simultaneously. It all had to happen at once. DNA, RNA, protein, because they're all dependent on each other and all come from each other. There's no way for that first cell to evolve or develop from anything else. It has to be in existence in its entirety. You know, every time the church tries to be culturally cool, we show up, you're already like grimacing just at that phrase, right? You know what happens is we show up with ideas that are already out of style. If you've ever been to a youth group, then you've observed this, right? And, and, and trying to be culturally relevant by embracing theistic evolution would be like showing up now in 90s baggy jeans or like a bright yellow FUBU tracksuit and being like, what's up, homies? Just one of you here to share the good word with you. You know, it just wouldn't work and you'd end up looking stupid. And that's what's happening right now with all these believers who are saying, I figured it out. We gotta get on the evolution train so that we can be taken seriously intellectually. Christians are doing that just as the people they're trying to reach are getting off the evolution train because it doesn't work. It's moronic, you just end up looking stupid and Christianity is a timeless faith. It's never been a cool or a trend-based faith and, and the true church has never measured success by how culturally relevant it is. The true church measures success by how faithful she can be to the teachings of Jesus and his word. There's currently no consensus in the scientific community. Do you realize this? There's no consensus on the origin of the universe and the world we have today. 
The closest thing to a consensus is just that Darwinianism is failing. It cannot account for the origin of species, the unique appearance of different species on the planet today. This truly is the strangest time for believers to be getting on board with any variation of evolutionary theory. It doesn't make sense, so don't buy it. Don't, don't buy it. In conclusion, I, I want to encourage you to take some time today um, to just meditate on how amazing it is that, that God loves you. Just to go back to thinking about how big God is. He's, he's massive, he's glorious, and he, he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need you, he doesn't need me. He doesn't have any obligations to us, but he loves us. He chooses to love us. He loves you and he, he loves me. And I want to encourage you to make sure that you don't let yourself get to the place where you become so spiritually complacent that that doesn't blow you away anymore. Don't let your heart get to the place where, where you become so indifferent that you just say, that's just what God does. Of course he loves me. He's God. That's his job. He doesn't have to. It didn't have to be this way. He could have just left us in the state we're in and said, you deserve to be in that way. And just play it out. As you destroy yourselves with sin and its consequences, you'll serve as a warning for the next world that I create. He could have just done that. But instead, the Bible says he counts the number of the stars and he calls them all by name. And in Luke, Jesus says, the very hairs of your head are all numbered, that he knows what's going on on the smallest level of your life, and he cares about you with that level of detail and precision. And then I want to encourage you, regardless of what society is saying, to put your faith and trust in the word of God. The word of God is the only thing declaring the true nature of reality to you. So, so if you're in a place right now where there is a clash, where there is a difference between what the word of God says and the reality that you're living in. The state of a relationship, the state of your family, the state of your work life, an issue that you're wrestling with. If there's a difference between what the word of God says and what you're experiencing right now, I want to encourage you, the word of God is the thing that's telling you the truth. The word of God is the thing telling you the true nature of reality. And so even if it doesn't line up with your life right now, stand on what the word of God says. Believe it. Claim it. Thank God that it's true. Thank him over and over and over again that it's true. The word of God will always be proven to be true. Always. Every single time. The only question is how long it's going to take us to realize that it's true. How long we're going to try another way and do something else before the word of God is inevitably proven to be true again. You can build your life on it. I've seen it over and over and over again in my own life. With that, would you bow your head? Let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you for the truth of your word. Um, thank you that you've made it plain to us. And Lord, even though the world around us screams a different message on everything from where the universe came from to how family is supposed to work, to how marriage is supposed to work, to how work is supposed to work. Lord, we know that your word tells us the truth. And Father, we are so in awe of the fact that you love us. That in a universe this big, this glorious, that reveals a God who's powerful and lacks nothing, you've chosen to number the hairs on our head. You've chosen to look into every day of our lives 
and you've put together plans and opportunities for us to be delivered from trouble, to be healed from our infirmities, to find peace in our time of crisis, to find joy in our time of sorrow. So Lord, we pray that that we would look at what you say and put that up above everything else as the truth. Help us to believe it. Help us to stand on it. Help us not to give an ounce of space in our mind or in our emotions for anything other than the truth of your word. We know you'll be proven to be right. You always are. Thank you that you're faithful and thank you that you love us. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.